Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hello and welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown. With me again is my good friend Matthew. I'm glad you came back this week and happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. What are you and Justin doing for the made-up holiday? Well, luckily Justin doesn't know that the meal generally is head today. Yeah. Because we're recording today, so we're doing it tomorrow. Oh, gotcha. A lot of people do eat on Mondays. Do they? Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, we were always a Sunday family. Yeah. Some people, you know, stand on that tradition. And, and on then Sundays. turkey on toast with gravy on Monday. Oh my gosh, that sounds really good. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm hungry and we just ate. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Gobble-gobble. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Old Mike Todor's body was found in his East End Regina home in the spring of 1955. He'd lain there for more than 14 months and had been beaten to death. Someone had killed him, but who? Elizabeth Tootsie LaFleche, Mike's 30-something-year-old wife who'd been living with a friend for months, was telling a lot of stories about what had become of Mike. None of the tales made a lot of sense. After police found Mike's body, a number of arrests were made, Charges were laid and several trials held, but thanks to Tootsie's lies, the real facts of the case may never be known. You're listening to Dark Patine episode 190, Anything But the Truth, The Murder of Mike Todor. Mike Todor was born Mihail Todor in Romania in 1880. Along with thousands of other Eastern European immigrants, Todor moved to Saskatchewan in 1912 to help settle Canada's West and have a better life for himself. He set up his first homestead near Wheatstone, a farming community to the southwest of Regina. According to Pier 21, the website for the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21 in Halifax, quote, From 1867 to 1914, the Canadian West opened for mass settlement and became home to millions of immigrant settlers seeking a new life. This immigration boom created key industries still important to Canada's international role, 
like agriculture, mining, and oil. The prairie provinces of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta grew rapidly in these years as settlers began to transform the barren prairie flatland and establish unique cultural settlements. Many motivations brought immigrants to Canada. Greater economic opportunity and improved quality of life, an escape from oppression and persecution, and opportunities and adventures presented to desirable immigrant groups by Canadian immigration agencies. By examining these motivations, an understanding of prairie immigration experiences and settlement patterns evolves in interesting ways. You can learn more at that peer21.ca site. Todor chose Mike, an anglicized form of his Romanian first name Mihail, which translates directly to Michael. He sometimes went by John, but mostly Mike. Since he'd emigrated, he'd done pretty well for himself earning cash as a traveling construction laborer and through the sale of real estate he'd purchased years earlier. Later in his life, Mike Todor was making a decent income from an apartment house that he owned, which, according to Frank Jones' book, Trail of Blood, took up four residential lots on prime land in Regina. As he was away for work a lot, Todor hired a law firm to collect rent from his tenants and pay his bills from the cash. But rather than live on the more lucrative property himself, Mike chose to live in a shack on McKay Street. Mike Todor was known for his love of a stiff drink. Sometimes, after he'd had a few too many, he talked about things that might have been better kept to himself. According to Frank Jones' book, Mike said, quote, I got money stuffed in my mattress, but don't think nobody can steal it. I got a gun right by my bed and a big stick. He told neighbor Carol Frost that he had $40,000 hidden and even showed her the gun. With inflation, that's like $400,000 in today's money. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, you don't go around bragging about having four hundred dollars in your mattress. You're just asking for trouble. Always the entrepreneur. Mike had rented out rooms in his tiny shack, often to the folks he drank with. There was no shortage of sketchy characters willing to help the friendly old-timer finish a bottle as, thanks to his money, they knew there'd always be another. One of those unsavory characters was Tootsie LaFleche. But, okay, let's stop here for a second. Okay. So these names. Yes. Right? So it's like they're out of a Pulp Fiction crime novella or something, right? Yeah, well, there's that. So you have Mike, yes. right? Who sometimes goes by John. Yeah. Like, he chose the two most boring names in the world. Yeah, I get it. And, but, you know, at the same time, you know, if you're writing a novel, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Solid, salt of the earth, yeah. regular guy, right? And then you have Tootsie La Flesh, you know, the dichotomy of like, you know, maybe the promise of sweetness and animal attraction, the lure of transgression. So all the descriptions of Tootsie yeah. uh, described her as probably one of the most unattractive people. And I have seen photos of her. Yeah. Also not great. Well, she managed to, uh, sounds like she's, well, we'll hear, <laughs> but you know, she's going to be trouble. Yeah. She was definitely trouble. Yeah. Tootsie had lived a rough life, having been in and out of jail for various offenses, including fraud and bootlegging. She'd also been a patient in a local mental institution for extended periods for undisclosed reasons. Tootsie was also alcoholic and was addicted to various drugs. She was known to be a pathological liar and had told so many untruths that she'd lost track of the facts of her own life, including which year she had been born. Tootsie didn't even know how old she was. She said she was 30-ish, 
but probably closer to her mid-thirties. A police officer later described Tootsie's appearance in unflattering ways, saying she was sexually available for as little as the price of a bottle of beer. Tootsie was married for the first time when she was 13 and had been wed three more times before she came to live with Mike Todor. First, she was his housekeeper in the fall of 1953. It took only weeks before Tootsie and Mike Todor's business relationship turned sexual and the old man became husband number five for the burly and sexually aggressive lady bootlegger. The marriage, if you can call it that, ended after only a week when Tootsie began a sexual relationship with another of the boarders in the three-room hovel, a 65-year-old Yugoslavian laborer and friend of Mike Todor's. She told friends that Mike was, quote, hard to get along with, but she wasn't leaving him anytime soon. She knew Mike had money. Why are you smiling? <laughs> You've described her as Burly. Yeah. And I was already thinking her name sounded like a drag queen's name. Yeah. And now for the rest of the show, I'm going to be picturing her as Dustin Hoffman dressed as evil Tootsie. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but Dustin Hoffman would have to put on probably 200 pounds yeah. to play this role. Evil cause, Tootsie. Because Tootsie was a big Tootsie, person. Was she yeah. Tootsie role? And we don't want to fat shame anybody. That's not nice. I'm not fat shaming anyone. <laughs> I know, but still, <laughs> people will assume that. Tootsie began using Todor's little house as the headquarters for her bootlegging operation. The house was always filled with rough and rowdy characters looking for booze and sexual favors provided by Tootsie. Mike Todor became disturbed by the drunken, drug-fueled parties that Tootsie was hosting, often for days on end. His relatively quiet life of work and drinking with a few friends had turned ugly, thanks to Tootsie. On December 25, 1953, Mike Todor went for Christmas dinner at an old friend's house, but seemed preoccupied throughout. Mike decided to leave the festivities early, saying he was concerned about leaving his house in Tootsie's care for any period of time. According to Trail of Blood, Mike said, quote, I got to get home. There's a wild bunch of men and women in my house. I got to look after the place, end quote. Before walking off into the night, Mike Todor invited his friends to his home on McKay Street for a roast duck feast to celebrate Eastern Orthodox Christmas on January 7th. The couple who had been hosting him happily accepted. Mike had invited some other friends to the duck feast as well. But when the day came, as guest after guest arrived, Tootsie met them at the door, telling them all that Mike was not there. He had gone away. Carol Frost, who had kept her Christmas tree and dragged it with her to the celebration, was shocked that Mike hadn't told her he had canceled the dinner. It wasn't like him. Yeah, that's a big hint that something's wrong, mm -hmm. right? Because for them, Orthodox Christmas yeah. would have been bigger than December 25th because totally, it's yeah. their heritage. Mm -hmm. And to invite people over for Christmas dinner and then not be there is a big flag. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of days later, another of the dejected but concerned guests knocked on the door and asked for Mike. Once again, it was Tootsie who answered. She said that Mike had been home, but had left again. Over the ensuing months, she seemed to have a different story for everyone who came calling or asked about Mike Todor. Tootsie told some people that Mike was away on construction jobs at different locations. She even told some folks that Mike had died in a senior citizen's hospital in Windsor, Ontario, just across the river from his daughter Mary's place in Detroit. Tootsie also told one friend that Mike had been violent on the day before he went away. 
No one else recalled Mike being aggressive before, but LaFleche insisted. Tootsie claimed that the old man had chased her out of the house with a bat, and she'd had to hide in the outhouse afraid for her life. When she came out, she claimed he had left. Tootsie told so many stories that it was hard to keep track, but none of Mike Todor's friends or family saw him alive after the new year in 1954. From Trail of Blood, quote, the law firm of Fraser, Keith, and Nickel continued to collect the rent and pay the bills on Todor's other properties. City Hydrometer readers continued to read the outside meter and the bills were always paid. Tootsie continued to live in the middle room containing the wood-burning cook stove, giving frequent parties, doing a little bootlegging on the side, and entertaining a succession of disreputable and often inebriated men friends. Carol Frost noticed one difference. Every night now, Tootsie would come to her house to use the phone to call a cab. I wonder where she gets the money, Mrs. Frost wondered, end quote. Tootsie continued renting out rooms in the house. Two men moved into the shack. One of them, Ted Walters, was a skinny little wisp of a man. The other was more rough and ready, an ex-convict, farmhand, and friend of Tootsie's with an artificial leg, Jacob Dick. Tootsie was involved sexually with both men, but preferred Dick's company. Lol. What, what? I too prefer the company of Dick. <laughs> oh, I cracked me up. Oh, boy. Tootsie kept the door to the front room, Mike Todor's bedroom, locked. She explained that she was the only one allowed in or out of the room, and Tootsie had the only key. She told her lodgers and anyone else who asked that Mike had entrusted her with care of the property and the security of his room, where she claimed he kept his money. From Trail of Blood, quote, Twice Walter saw her unlock the room, but on both occasions she was careful to keep the door shut while inside. Then around July, Walters complained there was a strange smell and a lot of flies around the house. It's some cabbages rotting in the basement, explained Tootsie. When another friend, Evelyn Burke, complained about the smell, Tootsie said, maybe it's a dead cat or some of old Todor's dirty wine. Mrs. Burke went up to the locked door, noticing that the cracks were stuffed with rags. End quote. Mrs. Burke said that Tootsie should clean up the room and Tootsie jumped down her throat, telling the other woman that she would get around to it at some point, and that Evelyn should mind her own business. The rumors, Walters and Dick, moved out in the summer. Complaining of headaches for which she was taking handfuls of pills and in a maudlin mood, Tootsie abandoned Mike Todor's house in August of 1954 and moved in with Evelyn Burke. Oh, gross. They all moved out because of the stench, didn't they? Yeah, well, I read that that was a big factor in why people no longer wanted to live in that house. Oh, gross. In September, a neighbor noticed that Mike's house was left unlocked and called the police to report that. The cops did a cursory sweep of the property and finding nothing out of the ordinary, put a padlock on the door to protect Mike Todor's belongings until he came back to collect them. No one was in or out of the house for the rest of the fall or that winter. Everyone thought it sat empty. There were people wondering what had happened to old Mike Todor. On April 15, 1955, the Regina police were dispatched to Mike Todor's dilapidated three-room shack in the city's east end. No one had heard from Mike in months, and his daughter Mary, who lived in Detroit, was worried. 
although it was not odd for Mike Todor to be incommunicado for long stretches. He didn't have a phone, and he could not read or write himself. Any letters he did send to his family were dictated by him to a helpful neighbor. Mary had sent several letters to her aging father, but had received no answer for over a year. Something had to be wrong. Worried sick, Mary sent a letter to a friend in Regina, a professional hockey player named Paddy Ryan. He'd played in the European lower leagues for teams in Scotland and England from 1947 to 1953. Paddy went to check on Mike and found the place in darkness. There were no footprints in the snow, indicating no one had been in or out for some time. The door to the little house was padlocked, and Paddy couldn't see any movement inside after peering through the windows. The windows were papered up. Paddy Ryan returned home and called police to report his concerns, and the cops went out to 1849 McKay Street themselves the next morning. In those days, the neighborhood on the east side of Regina was referred to as Bohunktown mocking the scores of Eastern European immigrants who made up the majority of residents there. At times, it was rife with poverty, petty crime, and alcoholism. Bohunk. I looked that up. Yeah? Bohemian and Hungarian. Well, that sounds nice. It doesn't sound like a bad thing. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to be called a bohunk. Of course you would. He's my bow and he's a hunk. <sighs> Tootsie la flesh. <laughs> When the officers entered the house using the key for their own padlock, the first thing they noticed was the unmistakable smell of death. They expected to find someone, most likely the elderly homeowner, deceased, probably due to natural causes. Sure enough, inside, behind yet another locked door that they had to break down, there on a bed was the badly decomposing and maggot-ridden corpse of Mike Todor. He'd been there and dead for a long time. There was a deep coat of dust on everything in the room. There were Christmas decorations still present. Even though the condition of his body was horrendous, it was clear from his injuries that Mike had been bludgeoned to death. And we'll take a break right here. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back. What are your thoughts so far, Matthew? It's fascinating. Right. And there's so many strange elements and interesting characters so far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. As I researched it, I kept thinking, what a crazy story. This thing is just like endless. I'm, I'm having a bit more fun with it because it's like everyone's probably dead. They right? are, yeah. And so it's more historical, but it's just fascinating. And it gets more interesting too. Let's listen. The old man's room looked like a scene from a horror film. Police determined that poor Mike had been laying there for more than a year. Dust-covered, empty cans of bug-killing spray laid around the room and gave the story what appeared to be a bizarre twist. Someone had been spraying to keep the bugs at bay. 
The windows had been papered over, making it impossible to see in or out, giving the room an eerie feel, even in broad daylight. Investigators estimated that the old man had died either sometime in the evening of December 31, 1953, or in the early morning of January 1, 1954. This meant that he'd laid there, baking in the Saskatchewan summer sun. Blood spatter had stained the walls of the room. Mike's skull was crushed in several places. When investigators looked closer, they noticed that, grasped in Mike's mummified hand, was a good chunk of human hair. According to Frank Jones' trail of blood, there were 81 hairs in all. They were gray and black and did not belong to Mike Todor. Perhaps, fighting back, Mike had managed to grab a handful of his murderer's hair before he died. On the property, police found a hammer that seemed to match the wounds on Mike Todor's head. It had blood on it, too, so they determined this was in all likelihood the weapon that had been used to bash in old Mike's skull. The day after the police discovered Mike, the Saskatchewan Leader Post reported, quote, Todor's body, clad in underwear, was sprawled half on and half off a parasite-infested bed. His clenched hands raised as if to protect his head, which had been brutally smashed with a blunt instrument, end quote. Tootsie LaFleche had a lot to answer for. She'd moved out of Mike's place in the summer before, but the timeline didn't make sense. Mike had been dead long before that, most likely since the new year in 1954. Tootsie, a string of her bootlegging clientele, lovers, and several boarders had been in and out of the house in the months that police believed Mike's body had lain there. Investigating the first murder in their province in over six years, cops began arresting everyone with any kind of record who'd been seen around the property around the time Mike Todor was murdered and during the subsequent year that followed. No one seemed to know very much, except Walters and Burke, who told them of the horrific smell in the locked bedroom. There was no sign of either Tootsie LaFleche or Jacob Dick at first. Cops all over Saskatchewan and other prairie provinces were on the lookout for them. On April 18, 1955, three days after Mike's body was found, Tootsie and Jacob came to the Regina police together, and they turned themselves in. They'd been holed up together in Liberty, Saskatchewan, 115 kilometers northwest of Regina. They'd heard there that the police were looking for them. Jake Dick said that he had no idea what had happened to Mike Todor. Tootsie said she didn't kill the old man, but she said she knew who did. She named Nick Hordenchuk as the murderer. He was a man who'd spent a few evenings drinking at Mike Todor's shack. Police picked up Hordenchuk and charged him with murder. Hordenchuk, at the time of his arrest, had been sober for more than half a year and vehemently denied having anything to do with the murder of Mike Todor. Police apparently believed him and soon released Hordenchuk after discovering he'd been drinking on the other side of the city on New Year's 1954, the day of the murder. Hordenchuk's name as a suspect had made its way around the city and he became the target of people who thought him guilty of Mike Todor's murder. He talked to author Frank Jones years later, from Trail of Blood, quote, When police released me, little kids on the street yelled, You murderer! Guys would call me a murderer and SOB. I hadn't taken a drink in eight months. I was on a program. But that made me so mad I went back on the booze and I didn't stop drinking again till 1969. I lost 14 years out of my life through that case, he said bitterly. Yeah, I, f I feel for the guy, but he had other options, right? If you're a boozer, picking up unbottled is not the answer for anything. 
Yeah, if you're working the program, yeah. there's nothing that will make you yeah. go back on the bottle. The flip side of that is that's pretty extreme. Imagine if where you live, everybody's calling you a murderer. Mm -hmm. right? It's horrible. Yeah, I, I mean, for, I really for sure. Feel, I feel for the guy, but I'm, he did have other options. Yeah, of course. Like, yeah. Just ju jump into the program a little bit more. Yeah, or move. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, <laughs> or move. Or move. <laughs> Police went back to Tootsie. They had a new suspect, Jake Dick. Investigators had determined that the hairs found clutched in Mike Todor's hand could have belonged to Dick. They matched in color and consistency. Although Dick was still denying any knowledge of Mike's murder, Tootsie had changed her tune. She was now saying that, yes, it was Jacob Dick who had killed her fifth husband. In what became one of many conflicting recountings of what had happened to Mike Todor, Tootsie said that she and Mike had been playing cards and drinking on New Year's Eve. Mike had gotten tired and gone to bed, but Tootsie was still up for a party. She claimed that she'd gone for a walk, as she did sometimes when she was drunk. On her walk, she ran into Jacob Dick, who'd been recently released from jail and was looking for a party. Tootsie said the pair made their way back to Mike's shack, she said they knocked on the window to wake Mike, and he let them in. Then she said the three of them drank some homemade wine with high alcohol content and that it made all of them very, very drunk. Tootsie claimed that an argument started between Mike and Jake. She said that Jake was accusing Mike of not paying him for some work that he'd done around Mike's properties. Mike, apparently frustrated, then left the room and went into his bedroom, and Jake followed. The next thing Tootsie claimed she recalled was Mike crying out, Why, why? And then she heard a struggle and loud thuds coming from the other room. Tootsie said that on hearing the commotion, she went into the room and saw Mike Tudor bleeding from his head wounds, with Jake standing over the old man with a hammer. She said she approached the bed and her foot slipped a bit in the blood that had leaked out of Mike's head and onto the floor. Tootsie said that Jake then warned her that if she called the cops or told anyone about what she'd seen, the same would happen to her. Accounting for the money that people had seen her spending, Tootsie claimed that she'd kept $215 from Mike's wallet, and Jake took another $1,500 that she'd later seen him bury in a couple of coffee cans on a farm where they were both working months later. Jacob A. Dick was officially charged that on or about January 1st, 1954, at or near Regina in Saskatchewan, he unlawfully murdered Mihail Todor, contrary to Section 201 of the Criminal Code of Canada. Tootsie was charged as an accessory. Police believe that Tootsie had more to do with the crime than she was admitting, but as she'd agreed to testify against Dick, her charges were not as serious. Over the next year and a half, Jacob Dick was tried three times for the murder of Mike Todor, with a fourth pending when a resolution finally came. During the trials, Tootsie's testimony was all over the place, and her stories didn't hold up very well. According to Frank Jones' Trail of Blood, quote, At the second trial, Tootsie's evidence contradicted her statements at the preliminary hearing and first trial on a number of points. Mr. Justice Stuart McKercher held up his hand. Now, Miss LaFleche, you swore to tell the truth. A sly expression found its way across the vast reaches of Tootsie's face. Oh, no, I didn't, Judge. You didn't hear me right, she said. I said in a whisper, I swear to tell anything but the truth. Everyone in that crowded courtroom roared with laughter. She was incorrigible, and one of the several judges she appeared before was to call her an admitted, unmitigated liar. End quote. 
She did, however, consistently admit to having sealed up Mike Todor's room after his death. During all the court proceedings, at one point, Tootsie had attempted to die by suicide, taking a handful of pills she'd somehow secreted. In the first two trials, thanks to the seeds of confusion sown by Tootsie, the juries charged with determining Jacob's fate were unable to come to a decision. At each of his three trials, Dick gave evidence in his own defense. This evidence, notwithstanding severe cross-examinations, was exactly the same as that he'd given in his earlier statements to police. They never wavered. In addition, two witnesses were called who, if they were to be believed, substantiated the evidence of Dick's whereabouts on the evening and night of the murder he was alleged to have committed. After the third trial came a verdict. This time, Jacob was found guilty. It was the hair evidence in Tootsie's testimony that had convicted him. Dick was sentenced to be hanged on July 24, 1956. After his conviction and death sentence, the lawyers acting in Jacob's defense appealed. Tootsie was then convicted for her part in the crime and sentenced to five years behind bars. At her sentencing, Tootsie's counsel intimated that his client had spent seven years of her life inside a mental institution and, quote, had the mind of a 12-year-old child, end quote. Dick's defense team claimed the timeline for the murder did not fit and that he could not have been where Tootsie claimed he was on the night of Mike Todor's murder. Jacob, they said, could not have walked the distance he'd have had to in the time that he would have had to get to Mike's place that night due to his single leg. Mike Todor was no frail man. At the time of his death, he was still fit and capable of taking on demanding construction work. Dick, the defense said, was not stable enough on his artificial leg to have held Mike Todor down and then murder him. When Dick was seen the day after the murder, he was still wearing the same clothes as the day before and had no blood on him. The evidence in the room showed that the killer would have been covered in Mike Todor's blood. Dick's emotional state immediately after the time the crime had been committed did not indicate that of a man feeling any guilt or any kind of remorse. The timeline was just too tight as Jacob Dick had been serving a 30-day term in Prince Albert Jail and was released on December 30, 1953. He returned to Regina on the morning of December 31, 1953. It is clear that if the murder occurred prior to the night of December 31st, or January 1st, 1954, he could not have been present. Dick's defense team pointed out that the hair evidence was questionable. The RCMP expert had testified that he believed that the hair, in fact, had come from the head of Jacob Dick. However, he could not confirm a timeline. Someone else could have taken the hair from Dick's head at any time, before or after the crime, and then planted it in the dead man's hands. As well, when asked whether the hair could have possibly come from someone else's head, it was determined possible, but not probable. Thanks to the strength of his appeal, Jake's murder conviction was set aside and his execution date was cancelled. A fourth trial was ordered. Tootsie's conviction held, and she did not appeal. In late August of 1956, not wanting to try Jacob Dick a fourth time, the Crown filed a stay of proceedings essentially dropping the charges against Jacob. They had no new evidence, and as what they did have had failed to convict Jake on three different occasions, they cut their losses. Even though a stay in proceedings indicated a remote possibility of another trial, there was not going to be one. Jacob Dick, 46, was released from custody in September of 1956. The judge who read the decision said the only one he could see that should be hanged 
was Tootsie LaFleche. The Crown Prosecutor, R.M. Barr, Q.C., who had overseen all of Jacob Dick's trials, resigned in December of 1956 and returned to private practice. Barr stuck to his guns, claiming he'd prosecuted the right man. Tootsie did her five-year bit at Kingston, Ontario's Penitentiary for Women and was released in 1960. Just a few days after getting out of jail, Tootsie was found dead in a ditch off an Ontario highway. She'd been run over by a hit-and-run driver. No one was ever charged in her death, and no one else was ever charged again in Mike Todor's murder. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 190, Anything But the Truth, The Murder of Mike Todor. What are your thoughts on this story, Matthew? Yeah, I like the name of this episode, Mm -hmm. because the only way that they could have convicted anyone is would be if Tootsie had told the truth. Yep. Because if you think about it, like the body was there for over a year. Yeah. So, you know, especially back then, you know, with the forensics that they had, like, first of all, they wouldn't, they, how could they say, oh, he died either December 31st or, or New Year's day. Right. right? Well, uh, uh, one of the things that they went by were the Christmas decorations that were still up. Well, and the amount of dust in the house, which actually, prevented some forensics from happening because there was too much dust to dust for fingerprints. But some people put up their Christmas decorations like six months in advance. And leave them up all year round. I I remember my friend Mike left his Christmas tree up until May so we could drink every day. That's just laziness. Yeah, well, it's also alcoholism. (laughs) But, uh, and as far as the hair experts went. DNA. There's no DNA back then. Mm -hmm. Right. Dick's involvement. Like he, who, it's just too, it was too long. So yeah, you're right. She, you know, all of her lying made it impossible for them to figure out what happened. Yeah. Cause her story kept changing. And she's truly evil. Like she was out for herself. So like what she was doing there was just sliding around to make sure she got out as easily as possible. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause it was assumed. Horrible uh, woman. It was assumed that uh, she may have been involved in holding the old timer down while he was beaten yeah, to death and yeah. all kinds of things like that. And they gave her the the charges that they did because she had agreed to testify. Yeah. You know, against Jacob Dick, who eventually after three and I guess a half murder trials is let go. The thing about Jacob Dick is his own lawyer even said how unemotional he was. Mm. He was very stoic the entire time, even in the cell where he was awaiting execution, Mm. completely stoic, never showed any emotion. So the fact that he hadn't shown any emotion after a murder was not out of character for this guy. So maybe he did actually do it, but here's this, here's this guy with one leg Mm. and an artificial second leg hobbling through the snow in Mm. Saskatchewan in the winter. And he has a certain timeline to, I mean, I don't know. I don't know who done it. No, we, and we'll never know. And I think honestly, they, they couldn't with everything that you've said today. Yeah. They couldn't, they couldn't find him guilty in my opinion. No, you can't. No. Right. Yeah. The only thing that backed up the evidence was what Tootsie told them. Yeah, and fuck Tootsie. And it's like I mentioned in the episode, 
the hair in Mike Todor's hands, although it looked like it had come from Jake Dick's head, mm. when was it put there? Yeah. Did Tootsie just like, she was having an affair with the guy, it would be pretty easy to get some of his hair. And come on, hair looks like hair. Yeah. Right? How many people had sort of gray and brown hair? Yeah, right. <laughs> That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or 1-877-D-A-R-K-P-T-N. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. And let's have a listen to our first voicemail. Hey, besties. My name is Sarah. I live in North Vancouver, so Deep Cove. Um, I absolutely love your podcast. I've been listening to True Crime podcasts for probably three or four years, and I only listen to probably five. Um, I'm very, very specific about which ones I listen to, and your guys' is my absolute favorite. Um, it's the best. Uh, I There's a case going on in the news right now about um, Gabby uh, Peral, I think that's her, the name, about the girl that was missing in Utah, and I would love if you guys did a an update on the case or just kind of talked about it. That would be awesome. Um, anyways, I love you guys. Uh, thank you so much for being funny and producing amazing work. You guys are the best. Have an awesome day. Sarah. Yeah. In deep cove. In deep cove. I love I how people, I, I love deep cove. I do too. It and is I, so beautiful. I love how people in, from North Vancouver specify the neighborhood that they're from. Yeah. Not Lower Lonsdale. Yeah. I'm from Deep, Deep Cove. But Deep Cove is magical. Yeah. In Honey's Donuts. I know you're off the carbs. Yeah. But if you ever have a slip, a carb slip, <laughs> go to Honey's Donuts in Deep Cove. It's, it is it's fantastic. It's on the corner there, isn't it? Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. The donuts there I are wonder, amazing. Do you think Deep Cove, Deep Cove people hate us townies coming in on the weekends? I'm pretty certain because they do. the parking is impossible. Impossible, yeah. Like you have to go at like four in the morning. I'm sure the business owners don't mind so yeah. much, but uh, yeah, yeah. I actually looked at a house there when I first moved. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Um, and to your comments about the Gabby Petito case, here's an update that I. This is my opinion. Brian Laundry did it. The end. Yeah, that's the end. He murdered his girlfriend. Oh. Yep. So that was pretty full stop. <laughs> Hopefully they find him soon if he hasn't already taken care of himself. Um, mm. But we'll see. Uh, let's listen to another one. This one looks like it might be from Nova Scotia again. Hi there. I'm a longtime listener, first time caller from Nova Scotia. My name is Wendy. And I heard you mention recently that you rarely hear from anyone connected to Paul Bernardo. So I thought I would share my connection. It's not a direct connection, thankfully. Um, but in all of my life, I've only been called to jury duty once, and it was for the trial of Bernardo. I was a young woman living in Scarborough, often traveling by bus and subway in the dark during the horrible times of the Scarborough rapist as well. Um, but we didn't, uh, didn't have that connection to him at that time. But my memory is getting foggy, but uh, for the jury duty, we were called to the ballroom of the Delta Chelsea Hotel in Toronto, where names were called like a lottery for hours. And we were told the process was taking 
much longer than expected, and the hotel was called upon to prepare, prepare boxed lunches for us. Um, seems like there could have been a thousand people or more in that room. We were very crowded in inside, and uh, Bernardo was sitting at the front of the room, of course. But I seem to remember it went on for two or three days. Uh, and one day, while filing out for a break, I had to pass very near to him, and we made eye contact. And he actually smiled at me almost in a sheepish way. It was very, very strange given the situation we're in. And it was just like two strangers looking at each other and acknowledging each other. Very creepy. Um, But thankfully, I was not called from this initial draw or lottery and I was dismissed. But it was a strange experience as a young person in my 20s. And also let you know, I I never miss an episode and I appreciate the delicate manner with which you approach the der- terrible nightmare crimes. Thank you for keeping the memory of the victims alive. It's important. And you should both take a poo in your hat. Thanks for everything. Bye. Wow. If that's not a direct connection to Paul Bernardo, I don't know what is. Like, you were in the same room with him and made eye contact, and he sort of did his dumb grin at you. I got to third base for the first time with anyone ever in the Delta and Chelsea Hotel. Yep. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Well, way to make it about you. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you, Wendy. Yeah, like that. That's, that's creepy. Cre- yeah, that's really creepy. Oh, my God. Yeah. Old Paul Bernardo. Change his name to Teal. Yeah, Paul Teal. There was a joke going he, around at the time. Mm-hmm. I wanted, I, I wanted to paint my living room, and I did, but it's not quite a teal. It's more of a homolka teal. <laughs> a homolka teal. Oh, no. That is a terrible joke. I know. Uh, next up, let's listen to this one. Hey, Mike and Matt. Uh, my name's Pero. I live in Coquitlam. And uh, I just wanted to call and say I absolutely love the podcast. I've been listening to it since almost the beginning. And a few of the episodes have touched a little close to home. One you did recently, can't remember the name of it. Uh, it was on Spuraway in Coquitlam. I actually currently live within a block or two and when I heard that episode gave me chills because I know the exact area as I live just up the street from where that happened uh, and I absolutely loved learning about it and uh, I've told everybody I know about that now and uh, I have a few other friends that are really into the true crime and stuff like that and we had a good chat about that episode uh, I also wanted to say uh, yeah I absolutely love the podcast and I was hoping you guys could do me a favor and possibly plug a, a podcast that I just started up myself. If not, you guys can cut out the end of this message and hopefully still play the rest of it and go shit in your hats. If you do want to do me a favor and plug my podcast, it is The Truckin' Truth, and it's currently on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and basically anywhere else you can get a podcast. That would be absolutely amazing, and I'd actually love to interview either both of you or uh, just one of you. If either one of you are up for a quick interview, uh, that'd be great. Uh, you can send me an email at truckintruth, T-R-U-C-K-I-N, truth at gmail.com, and uh, we can make something happen. I can do a quick interview over the phone. It'd be absolutely great. Uh, Anyways, 
have a great day, and go shit in your hat. Well, thanks, Pero. That's kind of cool. Truck and truth. I truck love and that truth. Name. Yeah, I know the truck and truth. Yeah, I know the truck and truth. I've had a truck and enough of you, Matthew. I wonder what it's about. I think a lot of truckers are not a lot of truckers, but truckers can be serial killers. I wonder if it's about well. That. A lot of truckers listen to podcasts. Yeah, because they're on the road for yeah. a long time. Uh, Pero didn't really sell himself a lot and tell us what his podcast was about, but I'm sure people will go and check out the check Truck out, and Truth. Check on, out Truck and Truth on on uh, Spotify. Spotify and everywhere else. There you go. <laughs> and yeah, Pero, I will. I'll email you. Yeah, we'll work something out. Uh, well, listen to your podcast first. If it's good, you can interview Mike. If it's bad, you can interview me. Here's another. Hey guys. Very good shows. Uh, long-time listener, fourth-time caller. Um, Matthew, great great work on the show. Exceptional voice. Would love a recording of you reading Goodnight Moon. Uh, not to put my kid to bed, but for me, been having trouble sleeping, and your voice is divine. Um, with that said, quick story. I used to work for the Hudson's Bay Company, Young and Queen, uh, was listening to the Amityville show the other day and I have had my own experiences when it's come to paranormal and uh, all real no lucid or illicit drugs needed um, tales of children who still walk after falling from certain heights that were within the Hudson's Bay at one time before they renovated recently adding Saks Avenue but uh, I was on the fourth floor in the women's department and a child was running past me I, I saw the shadow, I heard the giggle, and it was absolutely terrifying. But nonetheless, being security, I had to keep going on um, with that as well. Also, in the, the third floor women's department, um, in what was called the room at the time, I had an experience where there was a wooden plank that was swaying back and forth without me being even near it. And... Again, it was just something I couldn't explain. Uh, there probably is ways that you could explain it, but for me, I just, that was my experience. You guys are amazing. Keep up the great work. Always love listening to you. And please, please, please don't forget to shit in your hat. Okay, Mike, Matthew, thank you so much for everything you do. Uh, brilliance at its best. And uh, this is Adam from Newmarket, by the way. Thank you so much for hopefully playing my call. Adam from Newmarket, I'm going to read you Goodnight Moon right now, just briefly. Okay. Good night, Moon. I had to look it up. I didn't know what it was. By Chivalry. There's a nail in the door, and there's glass on the lawn, tacks on the floor, and the TV is on. And I always sleep with my guns when you're gone. There's a blade by the bed and a phone in my hand, a dog on the floor, and some cash on the nightstand. When I'm all alone, the dreaming stops, and I just can't stand. Now, good night, Moon. I want the sun. If it's not here soon, I might be done. No, it won't be too soon till I say good night, moon. There you go. That's creepy. I know. Why would you it, want that? Why would you read that to your children? I don't know. Maybe it's not the right good night, moon. I don't know. But kind of a nice one, though. Yeah, it's an interesting one. As far as uh, paranormal stuff, we got a new podcast coming out. Morgan Knutson and I are doing a new podcast. I love Morgan's name so much. Yeah, she's great. And w it will be released on October 25th. That's right, the week before Halloween, and it's called Supernatural Circumstances. Wee exactly. There are no 
theremins harmed in that podcast. But uh, it's stories that Morgan, who is a paranormal researcher, uh, has researched over the years, or has has developed over the years, and she wanted a way to tell them. So I said, why don't we tell them together? That's great. Yeah, so it could be fun. Hopefully, a lot of people will listen. Will you miss me? Of course. (laughs) Supernatural circumstances. Exactly. Oh, I heard, like, you did, like, the preview to it the other day. Yep. It's really cool. And that's it for voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARKPTN, and we'd love to hear from you. Let's move on to Patreon. Oh, can I, can I shout out first? Yes. So last week, um, we had a message from Casper. Mm-hmm. I forgot that I was chatting to him. So his wife, who lived down the street from me, was Valerie. So I just wanted to call out Casper and Valerie. And uh, Ms. Hockey, remember we were making fun of her name? Yes. Um, if she had said she's the mom of Vito the dog with his super long tongue, I would have known who she's who she was. Oh, well, there you go. Have you seen the picture? No. The, the tongue is longer than the dog. It's amazing. That's interesting. Yeah. So as far as patrons go, let's... Check out the first one. It is Teresa R. And Teresa, I don't know where Teresa is from, Matthew. Well, since today's episode was in East Regina. Yes. I'm going to focus there. Okay. So she's from Pilot Butt. (laughs) Pilot Butt? B-U-T-T-E. Okay. Pilot Butte then. Pilot Butt. It's just East of Regina. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Now there's a lot of regional pronunciations of things and people correct me on my pronunciation of Poutine all the time because they are Quebecois or uh, Anglophones who live in Quebec or those kind of things. I'm going to continue to say Poutine because it's a regional pronunciation and I don't care. Fight me on it. Send me emails, voicemails. I don't care. I just delete them. (laughs) You didn't ask me what she does. So what does Teresa, because I went on a rant on my soapbox, what does Teresa do? Well, in Pilot Butt, she makes seats for cockpits. Oh, well, that's good. There you go. Very nice. Next, we have longtime Yumber Yarder, Ariaj Arkham. Argie Bargy. Yeah, exactly. That's what I call her, Argie Bargy. And she is from Louisville, Kentucky. Kentucky. Oh, you had to do the accent. She's from Kentucky. I knew a man from Kentucky once. He was a nice fella. I know some other people from Kentucky too, but okay. that, that particular guy was a nice fella. And what does uh, what does she do there in Louisville? I Louisville. Think, I think I actually know what she does, but I can't remember what okay, she Okay, but just make something up. That's what we do. Well, my nickname for her is RG Bargy. Okay. So I think she's like a professional, um, get in a, she starts bar, ball, bar room brawls. Wow. Could you say that a little easier? Bar room brawls. So <laughs> she starts bar room brawls. For a living. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, how would one, st- is it like the old hit the person with a breakable chair or yeah. throw an ashtray. Or just like a general insult to the right person. Right? Drink in the face. Yeah. Yeah, she's quite good at it, I yeah. hear. Oh, good. Good there for you, Argy Bargy. Good for you, Argy Bargy. Next up, we have Charles Beliveau. And Charles is from Grand Prairie, Alberta. 
It's a grand prairie. Yeah. And so what does Charles Beliveau do there in Grand Prairie? He want, runs a retreat for um, away days for police. Away days for police. Yeah, where they do sort of um, team training exercises and things like that. You know, like fall into each other's arms. <laughs> oh, trust exercises. Yeah, that's, that's what it's Fall into each other's arms. I was thinking, mm, maybe that's more police academy. <laughs> I was and, just literally and, thinking And the Blue academy. Oyster Bar. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Yeah, so he runs the Blue Oyster Bar in Grand Prairie. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Charlie Beliveau, for your service. <laughs> Thanks, Charlie. <laughs> Charlie. Next, we have Lindsay Pfeiffer, and I don't know where Lindsay's from. Emerald Park, just east of Virginia. Okay. Yeah. And what does she do there in Emerald Park? Jeweler. Oh, because of emeralds. Yes. Oh, wow. You're good at this. I try. There you go. Well, thank you, Lindsay. Thanks, next, Lindsay. Next, we have Kristen Lacroix. And Kristen is from Bracebridge, Ontario. Bracebridge. I've never been to Bracebridge. Have you? Of course. You'd know where it is? Yeah. Where is it? In Ontario. Can't remember, but I know I've been there. Okay. Yeah. So what does Christian Lacroix do? Fashion designer. Of course she is. It's a Lacroix, darling. Fabulous. <laughs> Next up, we have Lara Jaeger. And Lara is from Corvallis, Oregon. Corvallis. Laura Jaeger. Jaeger. It's spelled the German spelling. Oh, like Jaeger. Yeah, exactly. Huh? Laura Jaeger. Lara Jaeger. Jaeger. Mick Jagger. What does Laura do there in Corvallis? Corvallis. You know, I was once on a bus in London and two girls were listening to that song that goes, uh, she got the moves like Jagger. Mm -hmm. And then one girl turns to the other girl and says, what's a Jagger? Oh, your parents are horrible people. Oh, man. It, she, she's, um, um, Ms. Jagger is a nightclub owner. There you go. Yep. So pouring the Jaeger, Jaeger bombs for everybody. Yep. There you go. Next, we have Jordan Marie Killam. And I don't know where Jordan's from, but Jordan is, uh, or Killam is a, is a last name that I've heard a lot in Nova Scotia, but I have a feeling that you're going to tell me she's from somewhere in Saskatchewan. She's from Copper Sands. Copper Sands. Oh, yeah. and what does she do there in Copper Sands? Well... She's unemployed now because she used to make the pennies, but um, Canada stopped using pennies. So it's tough times in copper sands now. Well, they still use copper for wire. Yeah, but copper sands was known for making the pennies, Mike, not the wire. Way to bring the show down <laughs> with some unemployment. <laughs> oh, well. So there you go. That's it for patrons. And we didn't have any donut money donors this week, but that's okay. Uh, we know that people love us because people tell us that they love us. And we love them. And speaking of which, I got my hands on those copies of my book. I started reading it today. Murder, Madness, and Mayhem. Yeah. On your sofa while you're cooking eggs with your new little egg meister egg, cooker. Egg meister cooker. Yeah, that was kind of fun. Um, so what do you think so far? Terrible? What, the eggs? The book. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I I like the opening uh, bit so far that you didn't write. So if the rest is Oh, good. Th that Alan Warren wrote? Yeah. Yeah, Alan wrote the uh, the foreword. That's, I, all, that's all I got to. And then I wrote the in 
introduction. Yeah, because your, your egg thingy worked quickly and I couldn't really get into the book. But I'm going to, even though I've bought, I've ordered 10, mm -hmm. I'm going to take one home with me. Yep, you're will, welcome okay, to. Will you sign it for me? I will sign it for you, yeah. We put like a really nice note in there, not just like your scroll. Okay, sure. Okay. I don't know what I'm going to write now. I have to think. <laughs> Thanks to all our donut money donors and patrons, past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot to us if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. My book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, as well as being in my own living room, is available <laughs> for pre-order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. Yes, I read the audiobook. Yes, there is a Kindle and a Kobo version. And the cover is beautiful. The cover is very beautiful. And speaking of our website... Please check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Please, please, please take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Happy Thanksgiving, fuckers. Happy, <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Go bye. Bye. on, that's kind of fun, isn't it? Fuckers. <laughs> <laughs>